Hello. Welcome to Episode 7, The Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled, It Can Happen Here. In the previous episode, we ended by speaking about the efforts of one Joel Brand, who tried to negotiate a deal between Adolf Eichmann and some of the Western powers. He was eventually unsuccessful and was arrested uh, in Aleppo. In this episode, we pick up with Joel. George states that he was released from British custody only after the war ended. He died in Germany, suffering a heart attack following his impassioned statements at a trial of Auschwitz officials. Even today, it is impossible to draw a conclusion about what would have happened if Eichmann's offer to sell one million Jews, and probably more after that, would have been accepted. One thing we know positively is that 10,000 trucks and the merchandise he wanted in return were a very small price for one million human lives. It is doubtless that also that the last chance to save millions of lives was turned down by the United States, Russia, and the British Kingdom because they did not believe that a Jew's life is worth a few thousand dollars. England even refused to send Joel Brand back to Budapest where he possibly could have saved more lives without anything in return. The Western powers refused to bomb the railroads from Hungary to Auschwitz, which could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives because it was the main transportation route for the Jews to the death camps. But the Western powers did not mind bombing large cities, killing thousands of innocent populations, including Jews. Editors note here, when I was younger, I remember my wife and her parents speaking of the Allies' planes flying over her parents when they were on the train fleeing Budapest, which a lot of displaced people rode. And everyone on the train was hungry. Some were trying to hoard food or cook an egg. And American planes would come over and the people would look up with hope. Instead, they were bombed. I've heard this story several times. But back to George's text. At the beginning of 1944, when over 800,000 Jews were still alive in Hungary, the Jewish agency made a proposal to the British government about hundreds of Palestinian Jews who volunteered to be parachuted over Hungary. This move could have helped the Western powers military forces and could also have helped to prevent more extermination of the Hungarian Jews who were still alive at that time. According to the Hungarian intelligence report, that proposal was approved by an all-military authorized bodies and an arrangement was made to carry out that mission. Then all of a sudden, without giving any reason why, the plan was canceled. Some members of the Hungarian Secret Service who were in charge of the Jewish affairs in Hungary and kept contact with the Jewish agencies in foreign countries too, reported that the parachuters mission was called off by the British government. According to the representative of the Jewish Agency for Palestine, Dr. Wiseman, W-E-I-Z-M-A-N-N, Dr. Wiseman's opinion was that the British government called off the whole deal because they were afraid that this action might give the Jewish agencies an idea for the future Palestinian statehood. Palestine was under British rule during the war. Prime Minister Churchill and the Foreign Minister Eden refused to save Jewish lives, again, for their own selfish reasons. Although the Regent von Horthy put a stop to the deportation in the provinces, and Eichmann and his Nazi gang left the country per Hitler's order, the life of the Jews in Budapest was getting worse. The restriction orders were enforced without exception. The Gestapo, or German or Hungarian, were still arresting Jews 
for different groundless reasons. Once somebody was arrested, that was the end for that person. After a few days, he was sent to a temporary camp, and then after a couple hundred were accumulated, they were transported or deported to an unknown destination. The underground was working day and night without stopping. Since the baptizing of Jews slowed down, because it did not mean too much anyhow, we had to find other ways to save people from deportation. Hitler was more and more aggressive about the Jewish problem because the Regent von Horthy did not agree with him. It was inescapable that he would be replaced by Hitler's order sooner or later. The Jewish population of Budapest were actually in prison without bars. They had no ways to escape and no safe place to go. In Budapest, there were a large number of Jews who were non-Hungarian citizens. They were staying with relatives without the required registration. When the Jews had to move into houses marked with the yellow star, or later on into the ghettos, nobody checked their papers or their identity. The Gestapo, without any authorization, were raiding these houses and ghettos and dragging hundreds of people away because they lacked identification papers or any documents that they exist. The only way to prove that a person was baptized at birth was the official birth certificate. Those Jews who were baptized during the last three years and had the official birth certificate in their possession still had to move into the ghettos. Due to the second Jewish restriction law, which points that out, those Jews who were baptized after July 31, 1919 were still to be treated like a Jew no matter what faith they follow. Beginning in 1944, thousands of Jews were baptized in Catholic or Protestant religions. Among those, there were several hundred who were not Hungarian citizens. Members of the underground knew that we needed official birth certificates in order to save these lives. Due to the advancing Red Army, the pressure from the Nazi occupational forces in Hungary, and the confusion in the government offices, corruption climbed to an all-time high. You could buy a lawyer's diploma for $1,000 in three days. Aware of that, we contacted the head of the License and Certification Bureau and made an offer which was accepted on the spot. We bought 1,000 birth certificate blanks, signed and sealed by an officially authorized person. We received the documents in three days for $10 a piece. For us, the hard work just started. Naturally, if a person was 55 years old, he could not have a brand new birth certificate. Through the Jewish Relief and Rescue Committee of Budapest, we acquired the list of those who needed documents. There were several hundred older persons whose certificates had to look at least 50 years old. Using heat lamps and different chemicals, in a few days, we made these certificates look 50 or more years old. For the younger generation, we just filled in the names and all the other data. Since we had the birth certificates, now we needed a place to relocate those people who were going to leave the ghetto. We could not give them new birth certificates, and in some cases, new identification papers, as long as they were in the ghetto in case of a raid by the Gestapo, which happened unexpectedly day or night. For anybody found with new documents, who according to his papers is Christian, the question would be, what a Christian is doing in the ghetto? The Gestapo was not made up of stupid people. They were well-educated and well-trained headhunters. They would come to the conclusion that something is wrong and an endless investigation would take place, immediately with the help of the Hungarian Gestapo and the city's police department. A situation like that would out and out end our mission, and probably would cause the death of thousands of innocent people. 
With the help of the members of some neutral countries' delegations, we rented houses and apartments from people who did not sympathize with the German or Nazi Hungarian Nazis. Then either the whole family or two or three persons left the ghetto. During those hours, they were allowed to. They went to Visegrady Street into an apartment house where some of the shadows lived. You have to know that those apartment houses, several blocks in length, were built back to back with the apartment houses in the street behind them. You went into the building in Visegrady Street and came out from the building behind it in Kresgeza Street. Gestapo did not know these little tricks and we were a step ahead of them, at least for the time being. When the new Christians went into the first building, they took off their armbands with the yellow star in it and I picked them up with the military ambulance when they came out of the building on Kresigroza Street. I took them to new locations where nobody was asking any questions or bothered them anyways. Later on, toward the end of the year, Regent Admiral von Horthy was forced out by Hitler and the Nazi lover Ferenc Zlesi, who became the head of the German government. These double exit buildings were serving a very important role then to save hundreds of lives. Even Raoul Wallenberg himself called our activities a very clever and effective system. Editor's note, you'll hear more about Raoul Wellenberg later. He is famous for helping the Jews in, during this time. Continuing on, on June 25, 1944, Pope Pius XII sent a big, long overdue message to Regent Admiral von Horthy, but by that time, 80% of the 437,500 Jews were gassed or massacred by machine guns. The papal plea was, was not a very strong request anyhow. It lacked the threat of any punishment, and did not produce any useful effects. All of a sudden, everybody tried to put pressure on the Hungarian region. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, accepting the request of the War Refugee Board, sent a strong message to the Hungarian government. He was threatening to bomb the country unless the deportation of Jews stopped immediately. Although the re Regent von Horthy stopped the deportation as soon as it was possible, President Roosevelt still sent bombers to destroy part of the capital and the cities and the provinces, killing the civilian population by the thousands, including many Jews. The War Refugee Board started to put pressure on the International Committee of the Red Cross, too. Finally, with the War Refugee Board representative in Sweden, Ivor Olsen, and King Gustav V of Sweden, and the Jewish organizations in Sweden, they worked out a plan to save the Hungarian Jews from extinction. They came up with a name who, by their judgment, was the most competent and capable person to solve the problem of how to save Jewish lives in Hungary. That person was Raoul Wallenberg. Even the regent, Admiral von Horthy, who knew the history of the Wallenberg family, had the highest regard for him. Just a few words about Raoul Wallenberg. He was the great-great-grandson of Michael Benedict, one of the first Jewish settlers in Sweden. At the end of the 18th century, he converted to the Lutheran religion later on. Raul was the son of a naval officer who died of cancer three months before his son was born. In his younger years, Raul Wellenberg studied in the United States. He earned an honors degree in architecture from the University of Michigan. After finishing school, he was traveling all over Europe and the Middle East. In 1936, he went to work for Midland Bank in Haifa, Palestine. There he met the Jewish refugees who fled, who fled the Nazi terror in Germany. In the early 40s, as a foreign representative of a Stockholm-based export-import firm, 
he traveled to the German-occupied European countries. On a business trip to Budapest in 1943, he met some leaders of the Jewish refugee organization in Budapest. Talking to his friends and business associates, he got a clear picture of the present and future fate of the Jewish population in Hungary. What he witnessed in Budapest reminded him very much of the German Nazi brutality he knew since Hitler came to power. Discussing the stricter Jewish laws and German influence and pressure on the Hungarian government, he was convinced that something must be done before it was too late. Prior to Wallensburg's departure for Hungary, King Gustav V sent the Hungarian Regent von Horthy a secret personal message describing the reason and necessity of Raoul Wallenberg's journey to Budapest and asking him for full cooperation. Raoul Wallenberg arrived in Budapest in early July 1944, about the same time when the Regent von Horthy stopped the deportation of all the Jews in the entire country. He was given full diplomatic accreditation as a third secretary of Sweden of the Swedish delegation in Budapest. He was assigned to organize a special department with full responsibility for the protection and relief of the Jewish population in Budapest. To finance his costly activity, the War Refugee Board, through its representative in Sweden, Ivor Olsen, sent him the first installment, $100,000. The board provided him with very important information and a list of corrupt Hungarian passport officials, an underground anti-Nazi contact list, statesmen who, since the beginning of the Jewish restriction laws, played successfully an ardent Nazi and anti-Semite in order to help out the endangered Jews. Another editorial note here, uh, even in uh, the, the 2020s, we know that Sweden is famous for having stood up for Jews and persecuted people in other countries. In early July, after Rural Wallenberg's arrival in Budapest, we met him in a combined diplomatic Jewish and underground organization meeting. He was very surprised and pleased with the result of the underground activities. After that, we exchanged information regularly once or twice a week. Raul Wallenberg came with a list of 700 Hungarian Jews for whom Swedish visas were available. His first list of Jews was given to the Hungarian government with a similar Swiss list of another 700 Jews whose immigration to Palestine had been approved by the British government. To make absolutely sure that those Jews were not be the prey of the German Gestapo or the Hungarian Nazi Aerocross gangs, with the government's help, he rented 32 apartment houses in the city and moved the Jews into those buildings. Eventually, he shielded over 20,000 Jews in protected houses established by him. During his half-year mission in Budapest, with the acceptance of the Hungarian government, he made up and issued 5,000 Swedish passports. Those people were under Swedish protection while waiting for immigration to Sweden. He moved those people from the ghetto to the protected houses. He built a citywide relief organization. He was setting up hospitals, nurseries, kitchens, and information offices. There were many hungry people since the Jews lost their jobs. They did not have any money to buy food. In certain stores they were not allowed anyway. Wallenberg managed to employ over 400 Jews in these establishments. The Nazis did not like his activities, but neither the Germans nor the Hungarian authorities dared to put a stop to it. His life was in danger all the time. The Swedish example to help the Jews in Budapest was followed by Switzerland immediately. 
They issued thousands of protective papers through the Swiss Council. Even the representatives of Spain were inspired by the other nations' motions to save Jewish lives in Hungary. Combined with the offer of the Portuguese government, they supported a program to shelter several hundred Jews. But the biggest help turned out to be the papal nuncio in Budapest, Monsignor Angelo Rota. The next subsection is titled, More Violence on the Streets of Budapest. Although the appeal from Pope Pius XII, the President of the United States, the President of the International Red Cross, and King Gustav V of Sweden had halted the deportation of the Hungarian Jews temporarily, the Jews in Budapest remained in the gravest danger. The Gestapo, working hand-in-hand with the Hungarian gendarmes and the heavily armed street fighters of the Hungarian Nazi Aerocross gangs, were an endless threat to the Jewish population. They did not respect the government orders and raided the ghettos and some of the protected houses too. The Aerocross gangs, usually five to ten boys aged 16 to 18, were beating the Jews on the streets while they tried to go to certain stores. They raided the houses at random in the ghetto and beat and robbed the occupants, occupants of whatever they still had. In some cases, the medicine and food supply had been cut off for days. Since the International Red Cross had at least tripled its representatives, the Jews living in the ghetto or houses marked with a yellow star had more chances to eat a warm meal at least once a day. Roe Wellenberg set up soup kitchens and a piece of bread was given to the hungry ones too. In other parts of the city, the Red Cross had several places where lunch or supper was available for those who asked for it. People started to form lines before daybreak and were standing in lines five, six, or more hours to get a bowl of soup and a piece of bread. Kitchens were not available at every corner. Some of the people had to walk half a mile one way or half a mile and half a mile back home after standing in the line five hours. They did not serve steaks or cheeseburgers with bacon. As a matter of fact, there was no meat available at all. Only the vegetables like dry beans, peas, yellow or green, and mostly potatoes. No fresh vegetables or milk at all. People were standing in line most of the time all day, waiting for food because they could not get food otherwise. Laborers, lawyers, doctors, once successful businessmen, all had to line up the same way for survival. In this time, it is hard for the younger generation, and he says here around 1998, to believe things like that could happen just a short five and a half decades back. When the supermarkets are full of merchandise, when the hamburger stands and pizza parlors are inviting everybody, it's hard to imagine the atrocities that happened in 1944. Just an editor's note here, I stated in the beginning this was written in 1996. He mentions 1998 here, so it must have gone on for a couple years in the editing process. To continue on, the free meals for those who needed them were available only during the day but the kitchens and people working for the International Red Cross, or Raoul Wallenberg, worked around the clock. Hundreds of Red Cross employees were preparing the meal in designated buildings for the Red Cross. Then it was taken to centralized locations for the convenience of the people. Although only the bare necessity was given to the Hungarian people, neither the Gestapo nor the SS was happy that somebody was trying to ease the misery of the suffering Jews. On one occasion, I witnessed myself Two SS soldiers tasted the food that was given to the Jews for supper. One of the soldiers did not like the taste of it, so he spat it back and kicked the container over, saying it was not even good for pigs. Maybe the food was not a homemade meal, 
but the people had no choice. He just wanted to intensify the suffering unnecessarily for the hungry people. About 200 people were left without food for that night. On July 15, 1944, while I was on duty in the military base on Uloy Road, I received a phone call from somewhere outside the ghetto on Dobbs Street. The caller reported a bloody fight between the street gang and the Jews. The military base was only a few minutes drive from the ghetto, so we jumped into the military ambulance and rushed to the place. By the time we arrived, the gang had already left behind a dozen bloody, beat-up people. Fortunately, no one was seriously hurt, but all of them were bleeding. To my surprise, one of them was my former classmate, whom I graduated from high school with. He told me how it happened. According to him, about 10 a.m., a dozen young men and boys, some of them not older than 17, entered the ghetto on Dobbs Street. They had handguns and were demanding jewelry from the people. Since they did not get any, they started to break the glass on the doors and windows, and when a few Jewish men asked them to stop, they started to beat them up at gunpoint. When they heard the siren of a police ambulance a few blocks away, they just left the place. Those poor people probably did not have any jewels left at all, but if they surrendered to their demand, then the next day another gang would show up and try to rob them again. My classmate and his family wanted to get out of the ghetto badly. So did their neighbor next to them. I told them the conditions they are facing, that they will become born-again Christians under a new identity in a new location. They can only take the absolute necessary personal belongings with them. The same day, toward evening, we went back and took eight persons out, eight persons to our, the Shadows Protected House on the western part of the capital. They kept their original documents sit, hidden somewhere for when the war was over, they could go back to their real identity. On July 19th, we had to pick up somebody on Terrorist Street from a house marked with a yellow star. The SS soldier at the end of the block did not make any objection. We took the one sick one to the Jewish hospital and took five more out of the ghetto and gave them the freedom with the new birth certificates and ID papers. Several thousand Jews were baptized at the suggestion of Monsignor Angelo Roncalli, the apostolic delegate in Turkey. He sent 5,000 baptism certificates to the papal nuncio in Budapest, Monsignor Angelo Rata. Thousands of Jews were escaping to Palestine through Turkey with the help of the papal delegate and the government of Turkey. Thousands of others received safe conduct passage issued by Monsignor Angelo Rata. Thousands of the Jewish population in Budapest were baptized in July and August 1944. Although they had all the official baptism certificates, they still had to stay in the ghettos or the protected houses. The baptism certificates were not a guaranteed passport to safety. I reluctantly end episode seven here due to time constraint. To continue on is to continue with more and worse atrocities. They just keep coming. But for now, we'll stop.